Tonight on Farage, it was said by the US Defense Department that Afghanistan was the Saudi Arabia of lithium. Has Joe Biden just handed this vital resource for a green future to the Chinese Communist Party? And on Talking Pines, I'm going to be joined by Cyrus Todawala. He is celebrity Indian chef, and we're going to talk about curry and is it racist? The Western world is going green. If you were ever in any doubt, just think about the G7 in Carbis Bay in Cornwall a couple of months ago. The world's leaders were there. It was almost a competition for who could cut CO2 emissions the quickest. And, of course, the new American president. After that nasty man, Donald Trump, yes, the lovely, kind, nice Joe Biden. America is back, is what he said. And he's absolutely with Boris Johnson and everybody else on the green agenda. And, of course, vital to that are electric cars. And, indeed, the British government have said that from 2030 there'll be no new cars that are fuelled by petrol or diesel. They'll all be electric cars, every new car from 2030. For those cars to function... And when you think about it, really, an electric car is just a big battery with a carapace around it. You need lithium. Why? Because it's the lightest metal available. It is a very, very good conductor. If you don't have lithium, you simply don't have electric cars. Now, in Afghanistan, back in the 1980s, the Soviets did extensive geological surveys and they found a lot of lithium. Amongst other things, too, gold, cobalt, copper, many other things. But in those days, lithium didn't really matter. Well, the Americans, in 2007, carried out their own surveys and produced it in a report in 2010. And it was then, it was then that the US Defense Department said that Afghanistan was the Saudi Arabia of lithium. But even that didn't really matter very much because Western governments had not by then made the really big commitments to go green and electric cars were really a little bit of a dream that was there on the horizon. What I find extraordinary is the ongoing cost of Afghanistan to the Americans was relatively small. The big money was spent in the early years. There were still 3,500 troops there in Afghanistan. There was still, of course, an Air Force presence there in Afghanistan. But I do find it extraordinary that by just walking away in the way that Biden did and with the Taliban taking over, he may well have blown the green revolution, which he is such a great champion of. And guess who the beneficiary is going to be? Well, Afghanistan borders China. The Chinese are really good at building roads and infrastructure. And China, despite its vast size, it may have lots of coal, which, of course, it mines in vast quantities as it continues to build 100 new coal-fired power stations every year. But China is very, very dependent on the rest of the world for copper, other resources, and indeed lithium too. So it seems to me that what Biden has done is given the Chinese an opportunity to do what they've already done in many parts of Africa, where they've gone in, they've bought mineral rights, the local governments get revenue from that, and by complete coincidence, lots of African leaders seem to get incredibly rich. I'm sure that is a coincidence. The Taliban and the Chinese government 
have already been talking about minerals. And we heard today that the world's second largest copper mine, a mine that was opened and then was closed because of the war, is going to reopen. And guess who's running it? Yep, it's going to be a Chinese company. And I think before very long, we will see China opening up lithium mining operations in what could well be the largest untapped reserve, probably is the largest untapped reserve of lithium in the world. And I think this is a major strategic failure by Joe Biden. I think it'll be disastrous for governments that want to go green. Um, and the Chinese must simply be laughing at what the American president has done. So please, you tell me, do you agree with me that this is a major strategic failure? It's a failure on many other fronts too. But let me know your thoughts, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Now, of course, today was the recall of Parliament. We had the Leader of the House, Jacob Rees-Mogg, here last night. So to find out what happened in Parliament, which opened up at 9.30 this morning, we go to Westminster and we speak to Darren McCaffrey, GB News's political editor. Darren, good evening to you. Yeah, hello, Nigel. Normally, of course, when Parliament comes for an emergency session, the Prime Minister addresses that, and he can most of the time rely on his backbenchers to be relatively supportive, clearly used to criticism from the opposition. Today, though, slightly different. In a fully packed House of Commons, the first that we've seen since the start of the pandemic, Boris Johnson faced a volley of questions from across the board, many of them critical, even from his own Conservative backbenchers. Questions like, why has the evacuation of British citizens and Afghanis who've helped the Brits over the last couple of years been botched? Why has it been so messy? How do we not see this coming? Why did the intelligence get it uh, so wrong. But also questions about whether Britain should accept more uh, than the 20,000 refugees that Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, has done so. Questions too about migration and terrorism. Can the Prime Minister really say that Al-Qaeda will not get a stronghold again under the Taliban? And also questions about the special relationship. Uh, did uh, Boris Johnson uh, essentially feel left out of the loop by Joe Biden, given his somewhat unilateral decision without properly consulting NATO. All in all, the Prime Minister frankly struggled at times to answer many of those questions. Fair to say it wasn't his best performance in the Commons. He did, though, insist that Al-Qaeda had somewhat been beaten back over the last 20 years and that many improvements had been made for rights for women and girls when it comes to things like education and free elections. But clearly, they're now all at risk. Here is the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, addressing MPs earlier today. The collapse of the Afghan forces has been much faster than expected. And as for, uh, as for the, uh, our NATO allies and allies around the world, uh, when it came for us to uh, look at the, uh, the options that this country might have in view of the American decision uh, to withdraw, Mr Speaker, we came up against this hard reality that since 2009... America has deployed 98% of all weapons released from NATO aircraft in Afghanistan. And at the peak of the operation, when there were 132,000 troops on the ground, 90,000 of them, Mr Speaker, were American. The West could not continue this US-led mission, a mission conceived and executed in support and defence of America without American logistics, 
without US air power and without American might. For the Labour opposition, though, there were questions, not least of all for Dominic Raab, about where the Foreign Secretary was on Sunday, that he'd somehow gone AWOL just as Kabul uh, was uh, about to fall to the Taliban. Shouldn't the Foreign Secretary been at his desk banging uh, the phones? But ultimately, or the main message from Keir Starmer was on this idea of competence and complacency, insisting that the British government should have seen this coming. We knew American troops with drawing down in Afghanistan for the last 18 months. We knew it was happening uh, this month. Uh, why had the government not got a proper plan in place? Here is Sir Keir Starmer. Your sacrifice deserves better than this. And so do the Afghan people. Yeah. Mr Speaker, there's been a major miscalculation of the resilience of the Afghan forces and staggering complacency from our government about the Taliban threat. The result is that the Taliban are now back in control of Afghanistan. The gains made through 20 years of sacrifice hang precariously. Women and girls fear for their liberty. Afghan civilians are holding on to the undercarriage of NATO aircraft, literally clinging to departing hope. And we face new threats to our security and an appalling humanitarian crisis. I will. Now, hundreds of MPs spoke today about the situation in Afghanistan. One of the speeches that stood out was from the former Prime Minister, Theresa May. It's become somewhat of a thorn in the side for Boris Johnson, but she focused on the issue of intelligence. Um, how is it that we didn't know uh, that the Taliban would be able to take control of Afghanistan quite so quickly? After all, Boris Johnson in the House of Commons only last month insisted that it was nigh impossible that they would be able to militarily take back control of Afghanistan. And yet, in just a couple of weeks, they did so. She was asking, how did the intelligence services get it so wrong, both in Washington and here in London? Can I just say to my right honourable friend that what President Biden has done is upheld a decision that was made by President Trump. It was a unilateral decision of President Trump to do a deal with the Taliban that has led to this withdrawal. And I finally just say this. All of our military personnel, all who served in Afghanistan, should hold their heads high and be proud of what they achieved in that country over 20 years of the change of life they brought to the people of Afghanistan and the safety they brought here to the UK. The politicians sent them there. The politicians decided to withdraw. The politicians must be responsible for the consequences. Now, the most poignant and powerful emotional speech today came from Tom Tugendhat. He is the chair of the Defence Select Committee in Parliament. And he, frankly, with silence from MPs across the board, talked about his grief and rage about the abandonment, of he called it, of Afghanistan and also the abandonment, he talked about, of the people who had served in Afghanistan, not least of all himself. Of course, he had been a soldier uh, there and that he wanted the government to address those issues, particularly for veterans. MPs so moved by that speech, many of them clapped it at the end. Let's have a listen. I was never prouder than when I was decorated by the 82nd Airborne after the capture of Musakala. It was a huge privilege, a huge privilege to be recognised by such an extraordinary unit in combat. 
to see their commander-in-chief call into question the courage of men I fought with, to claim that they ran. It's shameful. Those who have never fought for the colours they fly should be careful about criticising those who have. Well, some very powerful words there from Tom Tugendhat. Very powerful indeed. Darren, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed for summing up all that happened in Parliament today. And interesting, isn't it? Mrs May keeps popping up. I, I do think the former Prime Ministers really ought not to be there. Um, they get in the way. Um, but she was very firmly laying the blame fair and square at Donald Trump. But as Colonel Kellogg, uh, General Kellogg last night said with us, the point about the Trump withdrawal is it gave the Taliban a series of conditions to meet, and they were breaking them. So, has Joe Biden handed, effectively, the most important mineral on earth. And, you know, through time, salt was the most important commodity. Gold was the most important commodity. For most of the last 50 years, oil has been the most important commodity, and, indeed, wars have been fought over it. But there's no doubt that if we're going green, the mineral of the 21st century is lithium. Has Joe Biden made a huge strategic blunder. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Larry MacDonald, New York Times best-selling author, political and economic strategist, and somebody that talks to some of the biggest players and some of the biggest money around the world. Larry, welcome to GB News. Nigel, great to be with you. So, lithium, I mean, just tell us, tell us, Larry, in terms of industry, in terms of meeting green targets, just how important is lithium? Well, we run a Bloomberg chat with about 600 institutional investors around the world in about 23 countries. And over the last six months, we've been seeing you know, hedge fund after hedge fund, mutual funds, pension funds, all focused on green investments. You know, where's the trade? And the one point that, that is constantly made is the Politburo in China they don't look out a month. They don't look out a year. They look 10, 20 years out. And there's a billion people in China without an automobile. One billion human beings without an automobile. Uh, annual car sales uh, in the electric vehicle space are running about 2 million now. Um, the current fleet of automobiles in China is about 300 million. So you're looking at about 50 million of sales in uh, 10 years from now in electric vehicles. Okay, electric vehicle sales. So you're talking about a tremendous amount of lithium and, and China is mowing everybody's lawn, lawn right now because they're looking 10 years out and they're capturing the best assets on the planet. And what is this? I mean, why has Joe Biden done this? Given that it was, given that it was a U.S. geological survey, given that the U.S. Defense Department you know, said back in 2010 that Afghanistan was the Saudi Arabia of lithium. And given its importance, particularly given the emphasis that Biden has put on going green, I mean, was that simply not a consideration when it came to his announcing a unilateral withdrawal from Afghanistan? Well, when you talk to analysts around the street, there are current reserves in, in, in South America, uh, in Africa, in the Congo, Congo region, that will get us by uh, the next couple of years. But, you know, with that 10-year view, I think 
unfortunately, politicians in the United States, they are, you know, it's four year terms. They're looking short term. And at the end of the day, the Democratic Party has some very altruistic, beautiful goals in some respects. But a lot of times there's just not a lot of deep thought that goes into them. And they're just many times they're not mathematically uh, sustainable. And they oftentimes hurt the middle class, as you saw with oil over the last 12 months. Yeah. This is a perfect example of something where, you know, middle class people in the United States, they're going to need to buy electric vehicles. And by the time U.S. sales really start taking off, China is going to be capturing much of the elements around the world with their belt and road initiatives. They've, they've been this, this Afghanistan thing is old. It's kind of old news in the sense that. They, they have been moving into territories around the planet for like the last year and a half and making very long term investments where U.S. presidents look, you know, four years at a time. Yeah, we've seen this in China, haven't we, with the Belt and Road Initiative, whether it's uranium, whether it's cobalt. You know, they are very, very good at, at, at ensuring they get long term supplies. Larry, I must also ask you. Um, as, as somebody there in New York and, 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 and very involved in current affairs, I've noticed in the last 24 hours that even CNN and on the CNN website, I mean, a news organization who, who almost thought that uh, Biden was, well, not quite the second coming, but, but certainly was a wonderful man after that nasty, horrible chap um, from Trump Tower. Um, I've noticed even the U.S. media of all shades they're beginning to turn on Biden, aren't they? Well, we hosted a call this morning with institutional investors. We had the Bear Traps Report conference call. And uh, there were a number, we had six different questions about, has President Biden ruptured his power to the point where uh, the, the stimulus and this infrastructure bill, in terms of it passing through Congress, you need both, you know, you need both parties here to work on this bill. It was considered a slam dunk. And uh, institutional investors I saw this morning in the, in the questions are clearly saying, like, there's a worry that, you know, Biden's skill set was supposed to be the great, uh, you know, communicator in terms of bringing people together, not exactly in terms of speeches, but he was supposed to be that person that really brings both parties together. And that whole thesis has, was, has been ruptured this week. And if that's the case, then the infrastructure bill's in some trouble. And if you look at the trades in the market this week, uh, Nigel, some of the trades like solar stocks and some of the trades that are very sensitive to the infrastructure bill uh, clearly have been underperforming. So that tells you that, yes, there's a, a yeah. lot of political uh, damage yeah. that's been done. And can you understand, Larry, why there are voices uh, now in the UK uh, and in Europe, too, who are saying that what Biden has done is to give us a very big risk? And indeed, one of the MI5 bosses said that jihadis uh, that are living within our country will be emboldened by what has happened with the Taliban in Afghanistan, let alone the kind of refugee flow that we might see coming towards Europe. Uh, do you understand why uh, we're beginning to feel really very, very let down by America? And frankly, uh, you know, the question I think is being asked here now is how can we trust America all the while it's being led by this president? Yeah, that, that's the problem is, is going forward. Foreign policy, once you take um, the pressure off some of the bad guys, uh, you just have a proliferation of problems. I mean, we haven't, you know, you remember like 2010, 11, 12, 15, there were, there were a lot more uh, terrorist attacks globally that were very high profile. And, um, you know, you just had Jihai John, you had, 
you know, people in cages uh, with, with fires, you know, you had a lot of these public displays of, of terror. In the, the last four years, that's gone by the wayside. And now around the, around the world, people are looking at the United States and looking at that power vacuum and saying, okay, will the bad guys make, make a move here? Has, has, has the Biden administration opened the door to aggressive behavior on, on the part of bad, bad players in the world? Yeah, no, I, I have to say, um, that's our worry. Our worry is it's been quiet for a few years, and our worry is will we start to see that sort of horrible terrorist activity again. Larry McDonald, thank you for joining us here on GB News. In a moment, I can't resist going back to Australia and to tell you what the New South Wales Premier has said about the long-term wearing of face masks and social distancing. Don't go away. Well, the Taliban are now back in control and they have assets, potential assets, mineral assets in Afghanistan of a staggering $3 trillion. I mean, it's almost unbelievable. It's huge. And China, which of course borders Afghanistan, is desperately in need of those minerals. But so are we if we are going to go green. And it's going to be very difficult because without lithium, we will not have electric cars. There are other sources of lithium around the world, but Afghanistan is a really big one. Now, my what the farage moment. I have to go back to Australia. I simply can't help it. They seem to be going absolutely stone bonkers down under because the New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, she has overnight said this. She said, so long as Delta has presence in the world, even if we had zero cases and we were 80% double dosed, you would still need to respect the rules that exist around vaccinations, around social distancing, and around wearing face masks. So there we are. The Premier of New South Wales wants these restrictions to stay in place pretty much forever, because when it's not the Delta variant, it will simply be something else. I just can't work out what is going on in Australia. But in a crisis, of course, my next What the Farage moment. In a crisis, well, there are two people that we really badly need. Yes, it's Harry and Meghan to give us their wisdom. And we've been so fortunate that they have made a statement and they've told us that the world is an exceptionally fragile place right now. As we all feel the many layers of pain due to the situation in Afghanistan, we are left speechless. Well, thank goodness for that. Please, Harry and Meghan, stay speechless for as long as you possibly can. Now, back to Afghanistan. I'm joined now by Bob Seeley, Conservative Member of Parliament for the Isle of Wight. Bob, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Good evening to your viewers. You've been um, involved today in the House of Commons with this big debate, and I know that Boris Johnson has taken a fair bit of stick. Um, but I suppose, really, um, it's Joe Biden uh, that needs to take the stick. And I, I thought Boris's comment that we couldn't stay there militarily on our own was correct, and there was clearly no consultation either. Bob, did the, the question that I'm debating here tonight is the fact that the Americans have walked away, we've all walked away, the Taliban have taken over, and already, within three days, we have the Chinese government negotiating with the Taliban 
They're reopening a copper mine. I've no doubt they're going to go for those huge lithium resources. I think that it's a, a strategic error, uh, just on a huge, huge scale, especially if we want to go green. Did the China element of this, did it get discussed in the House of Commons today? Um, it did a little bit by Ian Duncan Smith, uh, I think Tobias Elwood, the chairman of the Defence Committee as well. So I think the pair of them certainly discussed China. I mentioned it as well, just rounding up, but a few of us did. Uh, but also the, the Russia angle as well, because I think the Ukrainians and the Taiwanese are going to be more nervous now if they see a retreating West. But by the way, as well as Biden taking the blame, Nigel, um, I, I mean, I don't want to have a, an argument about this unless you particularly want, but I'm afraid to say I think uh, President Trump um, takes an awful lot of blame for this as well. Negotiating behind the Afghan government's back with the Taliban, I'm sorry, it was a disaster. Yes, but the point, but the point about the the point about the withdrawal is, and, and actually, I get why Trump did this. You know, and, and, and let's face it, Trump's foreign policy uh, was overall far better than Biden's has been so far. And yes, I'm a defender of Trump, but we did last night have General yeah. Kellogg on. You know, he was part of that. And the point that was being made is that there was a political will after 20 years for troops to leave Afghanistan. And that was felt in this country as well. The point that was made that, yes, of course, Trump was talking to the Taliban uh, and there were conditions attached to the Taliban. I mean, do you honestly think that America would have announced it's walking away and not launched airstrikes under Trump on the Taliban as they were advancing? Yeah, but the, the problem is it's all very well saying airstrikes, but what and to whom? And with great respect, just blowing up a, a bunch of low-level fighters is not really going to amount to a hill of beans. And once you take out, if you're starting to take up what the military would refer to as high-value targets, then you're really upsetting the apple cart. So it's, it's an easy thing to say, but then it, it just begs a huge amount of questions as well. I mean, in fairness to the, your point of view, one of the conditions was that they had to reach a peace deal with the Afghan government, which Biden then walked away from. But yes. I'm afraid yes. to say this is well, dreadful. Look, I like you, I love America, but this is just a massive I mean, failure of America. It's, I, I think the Trump thing's academic. In four years as president, they didn't walk away. But we are where we are, uh, Bob Seeley. And I did see the speech that was given by Tom Tugendhat. That appeared to be a, a very emotional and, and, a, and a very, very powerful speech. But where do we go from here? Because the Taliban appear to be completely in control. There is little prospect, it seems, of us going back. Uh, is the world now, and particularly our country, are we now, Bob Seeley, much less secure? Well, I think all we can do is find out how bad things are going to get. Look, in the best case scenario is that the Taliban are reasonably reasonable. They allow women a moderate degree of freedom. Uh, the Chinese move in business-wise big time and insist on stability. And so you have a stability of sorts because the most destabilizing factor of the Taliban is now running the show. Uh, a worst case scenario is that the Russians and the Chinese say, crack on with the opium, just make sure it goes to Europe, Britain and America. Um, and we don't really care about the jihadis. So if they want to launch some stuff, as long as it's not coming our way, as long as it's not going north or east, we don't really care. In fact, it might be quite useful if it ends up in Europe, etc. In which case we are back to square one. This wasn't, Nigel, this wasn't about state building. It was an element. And I think in this country, we slightly oversold some of the virtue signaling elements of that. But fundamentally, we haven't had a terrorist attack from Afghanistan in 20 years. Why? Because militarily, we and the Afghan forces had control of the territory. 
and that has now gone and gone extraordinarily quickly. And I suspect, look, there's about between two and four thousand um, um, uh, uh, jihadis um, who have been let out of Kandahar, Bagram and Kabul prison. Once they've killed and settled scores in their own country, I find it hugely difficult to... And I interviewed some of these people in prison. I actually went to some of those prisons to understand the mindset in one of, my, in one of the tours I was there for. The idea that these people are going to go to the Hindu Kush, um, do a bit of gardening and, and grow pomegranates, sorry, it's for the birds. They're going to come after no. us and start blowing up Westerners again. No, well, that's the great worry. And the other concern I have is that Priti Patel, the government, are saying, look, we want to be generous, we want to help people who are genuine refugees. We'll take 25,000 people over the course of the next few years. Canada has said much the same. Europe, interestingly, you know, the Greek and German governments are saying, no, we don't want a repeat of 2015. Uh, but if we're going to take 25,000 people, it's not clear to me how. Um, and isn't there a risk uh, that if we don't define clearly where we're going to select who qualifies and who doesn't, that we get another huge human train heading towards Europe. Yes, very potentially. And, you know, if two or three of those people turn out to be jihadis who are put there deliberately, given false papers, and end up going on down Oxford Street. I mean, the Afghans, there are a lot of really lovely Afghan people. Um, and actually, a lot of the Afghan forces, they fought really well. And there are many people who are extraordinarily brave and have huge integrity. And actually, we do have a duty to look after them, because otherwise they're just going to get murdered, potentially, by their new regime. Yes, yes. The problem is, it, it becomes uncontrollable, and then you get the wrong sort of people in, or people just find it very difficult to adjust to a very different society. So clearly, there are problems. But at the same time, Nigel, we do have moral obligations. that We should under be no yes. illusion that. Yeah, no, I fully, I fully understand that and accept that, but there's a lot of work to do. Bob Seedy, thank you for coming on and joining us this evening. Well, some of your thoughts on this. Um, Camilla on email says, China already supplies 85% of lithium needed for electric batteries. If they get their hands on the deposits in Afghanistan, we will become their puppets in the future. Why didn't Biden see it coming? I do question that 85% figure, but hey, it's an opinion. Uh, Dave on email says, the reality is that China is way ahead in strategic planning. Yep. They are currently circling the world, understanding all government's policies and ensuring that they have a plan to harness the resources for those policies. They have bought mineral rights in most countries for the batteries in cars. Yes, they are planning a long, long way ahead and we're not. Alan on email says it's obvious to anyone that the reason why the Taliban were so able to move quickly in Afghanistan is because they were always there. Yes, that's true. They were always there. But you know something? One of the things that Biden got wrong was when he basically tried to point the finger and say to the Afghan army, this is all your fault. You know, you weren't man enough to stand up and fight. And the truth of it is, ever since 2014, yes, we've had the presence of the Americans, of the British, of, of some NATO allies. Yes, we've been there in Afghanistan and we've certainly been providing air support and cover. But the fighting since 2014 has been done by the Afghan army and they've had 45,000 casualties since 2014. Uh, we haven't lost anybody since 2014 and the Americans haven't lost anybody for over 18 months. So to, to say to the Afghans they've not been prepared to fight, for Joe Biden to do that was 
I have to say, nothing less than absolutely disgraceful. Now, towards the end of this hour, it'll be barrage the farage. So send in those questions I don't get to see. And in a moment, I'll be talking pints with Cyrus Toddy Waller. Now, today's Talking Pints was filmed earlier this week in a pub in central London. Take a look. Joining me today is Cyrus Tolliwala, somebody who has risen up through the ranks, the culinary ranks in this country. Perhaps somebody we could all learn something from. Well, Cyrus, thank you very much for joining me. You've got a cup of tea there, I see. I've got a cup of tea. Mm. I would have liked that, but no, I'm going back to work, so. <laughs> now, one of the remarkable things is, I think, and maybe you're going to disagree with me, but actually the British and India have had a remarkable relationship. You know, when you think about most European countries yep. and the colonies they had yep. in their empires, yep. they've all finished up hating each other. I mean, in, yes. a, in an extraordinary way, yep. and yet... I still feel there is a remarkable relationship between our two countries. It and always you, has been, I think. Yeah. Even though the independence movement was a little bit more, how would I say, ferocious in some ways, and it caused lots of problems, Britain and India are still very close. Yeah. No, they really, really are. Yeah. Now, it's the summer, and of course, touring this country at the moment yes. is the Indian cricket team. Oh, yeah, very much so. And it's a good side. And Indian Premier League has taken the world of cricket by storm. Yes. Uh, and there's suddenly there's big money. Uh, and I know that it is the national sport in India. Nothing even comes close, close by. Nothing no. comes close by. So these guys, uh, these big cricketers, I mean, they're real big hero figures. Well, no, not just hero figure. They're gods. They're gods. <laughs> they're gods. Some of them get, you know, they're almost like worshipped like gods. Sort of Kohli and people like Kohli, Tendulkar, you know, you walk around. Even my old friend, Farooq Engineer, yep. who is very much British and living here, he is still commands a major respect in India. So, yeah, big money, good side, but I have to ask you the question. All right. I have to ask you the I've question. I've been following it very no, closely, no, no, but no, you no, can't no, ask no. Me. Well, I mean, I've been following it very closely, but I've got to ask you, you've been living in this country for a long time. Ah, now comes the tough one. <laughs> well, I thought I'd get things off to an easy start. Yeah, no, who do you support? That's what I'm going to ask you. Ah, yeah. yes. Well, I'll tell you what. We used to do catering at Lord's. Yep. So we had a trailer. We used to be in the, you know, the nursery end for a few yeah, years. Yeah. And uh, when India and England played, it was very difficult. Who do you support? Yeah. Right? Because I live in this country. I'm obligated to Britain now. And I do my best to do what I can for Britain. Yep. But when it comes to India, we'll land up in a little bit of a tussle. <laughs> and it's very difficult. So you cannot say, how are they doing anymore? You have to say, how's England doing and how's India doing? Uh, <clears throat> and that conversation invariably crops up. So let's put it this way. I, you cannot draw a middle line. If India is doing better, you do hope that India is going to win. Yes. So this one is going to be a draw, more or less. Mm -hmm. But you'll be surprised that in India, unlike any other cricketing nation in the world, Indians will cheer a good cricketer, regardless of where he came from. So if England is touring India and the English cricket team is doing well, the Indians will not go away very disappointed. They will still cheer. Because they, they enjoy the cricket. Because they're enjoying the cricket. 
Yeah. They are not worried about who the person is as an individual. And I think that is drummed into us since we are kids. And we've always enjoyed that. So, I mean, as a young boy, I <clears throat> saw the greats of Gary Sobers and, you know, Gret, uh, uh, Lloyd and, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, and all those old cricketers. And we, we always enjoyed the person for who he was. Well, that's good to hear. Because yes, that's good. Because, you know, I mean, football, for example, can get horribly tribal um, where, you know, you can't respect the other team or the other cool. team's players. But if, 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 if you say that the Indians view cricket in that way, that's heartening. You haven't answered the question. I haven't answered the question. But like I said, I would... <laughs> I'm going to let you off. I, okay, I, thank I, you I, very I'm going to let you off. Thank I'm not going to pursue you. it. I can understand that you do have some mixed loyalties yeah. on this. Now, part of that relationship yep. between our country and India is the way that Indian food has... I mean, in my lifetime, I remember when I was a kid, you know, there were Chinese takeaways, but there was a few Indians scattered around. And with every few years that went past, there were just more and more and more and yeah. more Indians. And sort of, you know, once you become 18, you go to the pub on a Friday night, you go out for an Indian afterwards, it's just what everyone did. And I think it is... I mean, I think there are more Indian... At food outlets than there are fish and chip shops in this country now, or it must they, be close. Well, they said at one time thirteen and a half thousand, which has dwindled at the moment with the pandemic. With the pandemic and other things that the uh, the British palate has evolved a lot. It's become very more discerning over mm -hmm. the years, and so they say there are still about nine and a half to ten thousand outlets across the country, which is quite a lot for a small nation. It is a hell of a lot. Yeah. So I mean, almost you know, almost. Now I'm going to use the word. Um, curry, because we refer to all Indian food as curry. We've always said that. And, of course, you're going to tell me how different the food is from each region. Of course. I, of course, and I, and, I, yeah. and I want you to as well. Yeah. But there was a remarkable report out a couple of weeks ago from some, yes. aca some, some academic yes. said that the use of the word curry is racist, racist and we should drop it. I'd just love to know your reaction to that. Yeah, so what happened was instantly as it came out and the Times was going to write about it, I got called up. Hmm. I said, I do not think it's racist. I said, it's a lack of giving adequate information. So once you're used to a certain word, it becomes easy. It's become almost generic. Yes. yes. It's become generic. And use of a word generic is like <clears throat> anything else that we use in a day-to-day language. The problem has been that it has always been accepted rather than using it to educate people differently. I know things are different now. We've got high-class Indian restaurants, yeah, high-class yeah, yeah. Asian restaurants. But it's never been and a derogatory word, has it? I don't think it's... I personally, I found it very offensive when I first came. I said, Did people you? are ordering chicken tikka and why are they calling it curry? I could not put my hands around it. <laughs> right. Because the curry is a sauce made with coconut milk. Okay. And suddenly you got something dry and... Eventually, I gave in. So when I have a class and I do classes, quite a lot of classes, I do tell my people the differences. But it doesn't mean that I am highly of, of, offended by it or I would call it racist. I would not say it's racist today. It's anything but racist today. Okay. Uh, you know, you don't treat it that way. But the thing is that we can start to educate. It's become a big hype. <coughs> yep. It's gone viral on Instagram and Twitter and everywhere else. But the British public know differently. I think today when British people know how to define, they go to a good restaurant, they say, I'm going for the cuisine. I'm going to a takeaway, I'm going for that curry. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, of course, there is, the, you know, as you say, the growth of high-end Indian restaurants and everything. But 
But isn't it funny? I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, but we seem to be, as a country, we seem to want to beat ourselves up. We seem to want to apologize for everything that's in our history. Uh, there is an attempt to make us all think that we're terrible people, uh, that we should be guilty about the empire. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a certain negativity from the British about themselves. We're trying to convince our kids that, that if they're white, they have white privilege, uh, that this is an inherently racist country. How did you find it when you first came here 30 years ago? Uh, <clears throat> I never found it any different from living in Bombay. Uh, yes, a lot of people did in the restaurant because they said, how did you learn to speak English so quickly? I said, my dear sir, I come from the world's largest English-speaking country. And I was educated on the Cambridge Education Board. My papers were corrected in Cambridge, not in India. Right. At that time when I passed my examinations. But uh, uh, I mean, but never actually racist in that sense, in the sense that you were ostracized or you were made to feel small. I think I, I'm lucky I didn't come across that, if at all there did exist in a big way. Interesting. Yeah. And we've never felt it. Yes, there are pockets of it which you do come across. But I, I always have compared that to ignorance, not to anything else. Okay. Because in every society, no matter how educated you are or how affluent you are or how advanced a culture is, there is ignorance amongst the ranks. And that ignorance erupts every now and again mm. in different ways. And it is made to look it's different. It's not, never going to change. And if you're looking at the word racism, Nigel, very clearly, I come from a land which is riddled with racism. Uh, that's what I, this is the point. I, uh, I, 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 because of the, the divisions. The divisions. The color. Huge. The color. I mean, uh, in my, within my own family, mm -hmm. my aunt, my cousin is much darker skin than we are. We are from Persian origin, so our skin tone is different. But she didn't like her son because he was dark. It destroyed his life. It destroyed his future. It destroyed everything. Why? Because he should have been fairer. Now, this is within a family and a mother's reaction to a son. Okay, so I, don't, I think the British public should clear it from their brains yeah. and their minds that they are inherently racist. When things happen in history, they happen for different reasons. They happen for different purposes. They were used, yes, no doubt about it. Yeah. People were used to feed a, feed a hunger that was a growing economy. Yeah. It's very different. But you still have the best friends between the British and the Indians as well. Well, I think we do as well. No, yeah. I, I agree with you. And uh, people accept you. Okay, there will be comments. And I, we pass racist comments all the time between friends. My children get very upset. Dad, how can you speak like that? I said, you know what? We grew up like that. We don't consider it racist. Yeah, because it's, I mean, words okay. and teasing. Yeah. And, and that's the sort of thing you're talking about. Yeah. Now, one thing that was really interesting about the whole, I'm going to use the word curry. I can't help it because I was brought up with it. And you've told me it's OK. But we had this story, and it was a pre-pandemic story, really, that there was a massive shortage of people qualified to cook curries, to cook good Indian food. Um, and this led to, in fact, it became part of the Brexit debate. Because yes. part of the Brexit debate was, we've got an open door to the whole of Europe, so anybody can come from, you know, whether it's, whether it's Denmark or Romania or Bulgaria, anyone can come. And because the numbers that came were so big, I mean, in, in, enormous, far bigger than government had estimated, that then meant we clamped down on people coming in from the rest of the world, and that meant you know, a computer programmer from New Zealand or 
a chef from India, were finding it much, much harder to get into the country. So this story ran and ran and ran. Obviously, with the pandemic, we've not had that story. Uh, I mean, what's the truth of this? Is there a chronic shortage of people that can cook good Indian food? Well, I know the Brexit debate is your pet topic. <clears throat> yep. That, that's... Well, I'm now uh, onto your pet topic. But, so, <laughs> you're onto my pet topic. But I think, I think, and I reflect back on now when you spoke about the culture and the heritage mm. and this certain amount of this superiority culture getting into the minds and hearts of people growing up in this country, which has led to, personally, this complete and sheer neglect of skills across the board. Yeah. Now, when I first came to Britain in, in 1980, I was training in Switzerland. I was doing my patisserie and confectionery in Switzerland and my cousins lived here. So I used to come and go. I used to work for six weeks and collect my holidays and then come running here. And <clears throat> at that time, you saw certain uh, big differences. And what you, what you notice is that I came here to see all the great motorcycles that I grew up seeing. For example, my dad was the first Indian to ever work for the Automobile Association, the AA. Okay. So he was the chief of road service across uh, India. And, um, and I wanted to see these big bikes and I saw none. I saw the Japanese bikes and I was completely blown away. And so then it struck me that something must be wrong. But when I come here, I now notice that the skill levels have been eroded across all levels. So we are dependent on other people for plumbers, masons, electricians, cooks, chefs, wait, everything. And this has led to the problem. So if Britain concentrated and put a lot of effort into skills, particularly in hospitality, because second oldest profession in the world, why would you want to ignore it? The boom in multicultural cuisine in this country is like no other country in the world. No country in the world enjoys the privileges Britain enjoys today, and yet we've ignored it. So we bring a skill in, but we don't make that skill train other skills. We allow that so, skill so to be... So could we, should we be training those skills here amongst our own people? They should, Nigel. I, we started a college. I started the that, first yeah. ever Asian Oriental School of Catering yeah, yeah. and they clamped it, closed it down because at that time, the Learning and Skills Council thought they should put their money into inner city farming. Right. Okay? okay. But not in hospitality. Right. Well, you better apply again, I think, and try well, and get this going. Oof, I wish I got funding. I want to do training where right. I am. Well, there's a big advert there. There's a big appeal there. I hope somebody from government's listening to this. Yeah. Um, You've, you've risen up through the ranks. You've yeah. achieved a remarkable degree of respect in this country from people for what you've done. You've got an MBE, so you've, you've been honoured for doing that. Where do you go next? Where do I go next? I, I, the new kitchen that I'm developing, I'm putting a complete area in for training young people because it's just not happening enough. Good. And uh, I want, and we started a competition called Zest Quest Asia. And that is purely at British-born students of any origin to get into thinking Asian food is also part of my culture. And I want to make a career within Asian cuisine. The, the competition has become today the inter-college top competition. I'm very happy with that. I wish I could get more sponsors to keep yeah. giving money so we can train people. And the whole idea is if I get more time on my hands, I want to put more into training and developing young people. Well, I think that's fantastic, Cyrus. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you me. very much. And uh, yeah, there we are. Consistent with other themes that we've run on this show, we want to start training our young people. And what better to get more fine Indian chefs in this country? 
Well, I have to say, I really did enjoy meeting Cyrus, and some of the things he said there were really, really powerful, because we go around beating ourselves up in this country about racism, about how appalling our past is, about how dreadful we are, uh, and, and all this constant negativity. And he said very clearly, when he came to live in this country, and it's a long time ago, decades ago, he didn't personally experience any serious racism. Were there pockets? of people who thought things like that, yes. But as he said, far more racism in India, where he comes from, and certainly of all the years I spent working in Europe, I saw far, far more racism in European countries than I've ever seen here, and yet we seem to be very good at being incredibly negative about ourselves. I also thought the point that we don't need to import curry chefs from India, we can train our own people in this country. Again, I thought that was incredibly powerful. Now, it is time for Barrage the Farage, the questions I don't get to see before, so let's give it a go. John on email asks, would you reform or abolish the House of Lords? Well, how can you reform it? It's, it's almost impossible to reform it. Um, I, you know, Blair tried to reform it. What he did was to kick out the hereditaries and put in a couple of hundred of his own mates... And then David Cameron put in another couple of hundred of his own mates. Um, and we finished up with the House of Lords. Um, most of them live inside the M25. They have very little connection with the country outside it. Uh, why the Liberal Democrats have got 104 members of the House of Lords, I have absolutely no idea. Um, and I think the whole thing is way past its sell-by date. Uh, no, I... I, I promise you, if we had a referendum on the House of Lords, I mean, the turnout may not be that high, but we'd vote to get rid of it as it is. I want to get rid of it. It doesn't work. I'm sorry to say that, but it's true. And I think we'd be far better to have an elected second chamber uh, done on a regional or a county basis. Uh, we'd have to have some element of proportionality in terms of who was elected. And I would rather like to see people go there for one term only. So if people get elected, they're there for seven, eight years, something like that. What we've got now, frankly, is a disgrace. Uh, it's just full of Prime Minister's friends and party donors. It doesn't work. Debbie asks, how did you spend your lockdowns? Well, Debbie, I could be flippant and say that I just ignored the rules. Um, I actually be honest with you, I managed to lose weight during the lockdowns, which I was pleased about. Um, I took a lot more exercise, um, got a small, young, black Labrador, which has kept me very busy, and I was out walking with him at half six this morning. Um, and, and, yeah, I, I mean, in a very funny sort of way, after three and a half decades of living out of a suitcase in business and politics and travelling all over the world, not to travel for a little bit, was fun, uh, but by the end of it, I got rather bored. John asks, have you spoken to Nick Clegg since we left the EU? Sir Nick Clegg, to you, please do understand and know your place. I spoke to Nick after the referendum. I haven't seen Nick since he went off to Silicon Valley um, and now is the arbiter of free speech um, for billions of people in the world. He's one of those that has banned Donald Trump, um, and yet his mates over at Twitter allow Taliban leaders to still tweet. So I think Nick Clegg uh, ought to understand what real liberal values are about. I'm back with you tomorrow.